The Evolution Channel is sponsored by Eternal Gold Beauty, the most advanced skincare line in the world. Awaken your skin to aging in reverse at eternalgoldbeauty.com today. You're listening to The Frequency of Creativity with Melinda Har Curley. Welcome everyone to The Frequency of Creativity, where we are at the intersection of energy and art. I'm your host, Melinda Har Curley, and to see how I translate energy and light into art, sign up for my newsletter at melindaharcurley.com. Today, we are talking about the art of Salvador Dali, his spirituality and the reconciliation of science and mysticism. As you all probably know, Dali was a 20th century surrealist painter, and you all recognize him by his upturned mustache. Our guests today are Dr. Christopher Heath Brown and Dr. Jean-Pierre Isbouts. Welcome, gentlemen. Thanks for having us. Thanks for being here. Now, you both just published the book, The Dali Legacy. How an eccentric genius changed the art world and created a lasting legacy. Uh, Yesterday, I spent the whole day reading the book, and I'm really glad I did, and not just in terms for this interview. I thought it was well-written, well-researched, accessible, and objective. Now, I wasn't, you know, Dolly is not an easy figure to talk about. He's brilliant and also kind of off-putting as well. And in me reading the book, it gave me a better appreciation of his work and also a better understanding of it. Can you please share with me and with our listeners what compelled you to write a book about this very, I don't, there's so many adjectives that could fit him, very interesting figure. Well, if I can start and I'll pass it over to uh, Chris in a minute. Um, that's exactly why I wrote the book is because people love Dali, the art, because it's, it's figurative, it's realism, particularly in a time when a lot of people have become alienated from art. You know, for a lot of people, modern art has become the preserve of speculators, of art collectors, people who buy modern art in order for its appreciative value. They hope to see it as an investment. You know, when you go to Art Basel or major modern art exhibits like that, you know, much of it is incomprehensible. Uh, and I think that's why Dali is so appealing and why, you know, when Chris and I go to the wonderful Salvador Dali Museum in St. Petersburg, Florida. You know, we see people lining up to see his art because they understand what's up there. They they can they can identify with the figures uh, on the, on the canvas. Uh, what they struggle with is the bizarre behavior of the man himself. Right? He was very um, he was strange. He cultivated. Uh, sort of a a very strong personality cult around himself. 
He said strange things like every morning I wake up with the glorious feeling of being Dolly. I mean, I remember the modesty, quote from the book. Yes, modesty was not his strong suit. So we wanted to not only address that, but we also wanted to address what he often said is the secret of my art. What is the secret of Dolly's art? What is the secret of the appeal of his art? And and we think we identify that secret. And I'll let Chris say a little bit about that. Well, I also want, wanted to add, uh, and thank you for telling us that you enjoyed the book, but one thing that you didn't notice was, or didn't discuss is we have 150 color images in this book. I did notice. Yes, and they're beautiful. And we also have never seen before studies and drawings and etchings in the book, which really go to the mindset of Dali. And, and we wanted to be able to say, that although Dali's statement that the secret or secret of his influence was a secret only known to himself, we wanted to share with all the readers that that secret is actually the influence of the old masters and how he would take each individual old master and especially the ones that he liked the most. And with a little twist of an ism, whether it was cubism or realism or nuclear mysticism or surrealism, he would just twist their works a little bit, knowing that they were already famous works. And now they would be even famous, more famous because they would be more pertinent to contemporary society. This is a perfect time for us to take the required short break that we need to. And before we do, can you please share with our listeners where they can find information on uh, the book, The Dolly Legacy, that you just published? Well, we, um, they can visit my website, uh, jpisbouts.org, uh, jpisbouts.org. Uh, they can also go to uh, Amazon, of course, and enter The Dolly Legacy. Um, it should be available there, but also Barnes & Noble. And let's not forget our local bookstore. We should always keep our local bookstores in mind. And one more place is www.leonardobooks.com. And on this website, not only do we have The Dolly Legacy, but we have our three wonderful Da Vinci books as well. Okay. Um, please stay tuned as we really delve much more deeply into Dolly's spirituality and his reverence for science and mysticism. Hello, I'm Tonya Don Reckla, Executive Director of Superpower Experts and creator of the Superpower Network. Welcome and thank you for making us your go-to place for inspired content, training, and community. The network is so much more than a place for amazing content. It's step one on the path to unlock your superpowers. Listen to one episode daily on the Superpower Network and attune yourself to inspired conversations, higher vibrational living, and much, much more. In step two, you learn with us by watching one of our inspirational videos each week from the IM series. And when you're ready, come grow in community. Our superpower programs offer a unique experience for those ready to harness their superpowers to change themselves, their lives, and ultimately, the world. Go to superpowerexperts.com and take the next step on your path today. We're back with the frequency of creativity where we are at the intersection of energy and art. We're talking with Dr. Brown and Dr. Isbouts about the genius and lasting legacy of Salvador Dali. Dr. Brown, you are a practicing oral surgeon 
and right now you're in your scrubs. No one can see that. Uh, you're one of the most prominent collectors of works by Dolly in the U.S., and you're also the director of Brown Discoveries, a research institute focused on Renaissance, surrealist, and contemporary art. Chris, please tell us why you feel called to collect Dolly. Well, you know, my, my passion with Dolly started um, many years ago. And one of my first major purchases of, of a piece of artwork was uh, a, a Dolly uh, watercolor of, uh, of uh, a, a Rorsarch-like test of heaven. And the Rorsarch-like test was this beautiful blue and swirls of clouds, which represented God. And it was behind the pearly gates of heaven with, with a good angel and a bad angel and then Christ. And this was the first watercolor, a major, you know, purchase that I, that I had made. But as a very young child, uh, we lived outside of Washington, D.C. And, of course, we were in the National Gallery and all the Smithsonian's quite often. And my, my first love was a Raphael uh, painting of St. George slaying the dragon. So I really fell in love with the masters. And I really put... Dali into that Da Vinci and Raphael and Michelangelo and Velasquez, all these wonderful masters. He's just the most contemporary one because Dali really relied on the masters to, to do his work. And I was able to, to recognize that at a very young age. And the other thing is I really couldn't afford to buy one of the 16 Da Vinci's or, <laughs> or a Michelangelo sculpture. So the Dali lithographs and graphic works and oil colors and sculptures were much more uh, approachable for, for someone who, you know, has done pretty well as an oral surgeon. And I was able to build uh, an entire collection of all his graphic works. And um, it's taken 10 years to do that because there are 1900 different works and some of them are very rare. And um they each of them bring me joy in a different way because I, I see the genius behind Dolly because I have many publisher workups of how his process or his mind worked, not only in the write up to it, but actually how he would lay one color after another. Mm -hmm. So I really see each of his works probably in a different way than most people do very casually. And I'll, I'll tell you that it, it bothered Dolly so much that in the 1970s, he did a, a, a group of paintings. There were five of them called Changes in Great Masterpieces, because he really wanted people to look at art in a different way and not just be so casual about it. And he made little modifications in five masterpieces. One, of course, was his own masterpiece, The Persistence of Memory. But there were many masterpieces that he modified just slightly so that people would have to look at it and notice what the change was. So Dali just wasn't this guy that just would go up to a piece of canvas and start painting. No. He, he, he did a study first and he would do multiple studies and he would rely on other masters. He would rely on research of, you know, reading about nuclear periods or, or chromosomes or what the current thing in the current day was. Or if he was going to be at the fair, it would have something to do with other people at the fair, like Tony Rose and his water um, show. He, he involved, he involved water in his, you know, fair show as well. So he was a very brilliant person and I put him on the same level as Da Vinci and uh, some of the other masters. And so did he. Yes. Um, <laughs> Dr. Isbouts, you are an art historian and a doctoral professor at Fielding Graduate University. You are the author of nine books. 
You have been on numerous radio and TV shows and are the host of the TV series In Search of Masterpieces. You have directed programs for Disney, ABC, Hallmark, and the History Channel. Along with Dr. Brown, the both of you have co-authored three books on Leonardo da Vinci. How did your interest in da Vinci lead you to Dolly? Well, as as Chris just said, I think it was a fairly natural progression. Uh, We wrote a book uh, just in time for the 2019 quintessential of Leonardo da Vinci called The Da Da Vinci Legacy, uh, also published by Apollo. And in many ways, our new book, The Dali Legacy is a continuation of the Da Vinci Legacy, because what we did in the Da Vinci Legacy is try to explain how an artist who in 1519 had all been forgotten, he was eclipsed by his rivals, Raphael and Michelangelo. Uh, He left Rome after he did not receive any commissions from the Pope, Leo X who was all gaga about Michelangelo and Raphael. They were the big stars of the moment. And so he trooped off to pension in France. Uh, The king, Francois Premier, Francis I, took pity on da Vinci and offered him a pension and a small uh, mansion where he he could stay. So at this point, Leonardo was all but forgotten. I mean, he was gone from history. So how was it then? that 500 years later, today, he's considered the biggest icon of Renaissance art. That's the trajectory. That's the mystery that we wanted to unravel. And in the process of that, we stumbled on the fact that if there was one modern artist of the 20th century who really channeled Leonardo da Vinci in so many ways, it was Salvador Dali. And uh, so uh, we have a number of artworks uh, in that book, The Da Vinci Legacy. And then Chris and I said, you know what, we ought to continue that and to write a book about Dali specifically, individually, and to see if we could sort of create an argument that that is really the secret of my secret, the secret of my art, that Dali always referred to the influence of the old masters as well, I should hasten to add, the 19th century academic painters. Uh, when you look at Dali's art, you can see that, st- that the motifs that he's referring to, such as uh, Leda Atomica, Leda and the Swan, uh, the Last Supper concept, which became Sacrament of the Last Supper and Dali, that the, the motifs come from Leonardo, the treatment of texture comes from the Spanish masters, such as Morillo and Velasquez, uh, but the execution comes from the salon artists of the, the French 19th century, that, that painstaking realism, almost photographic realism. That is, that is a technique very much uh, influenced by photography, which of course became very prominent in the latter part of the 19th century. So that is sort of that, that whole argument uh, we're making now, lest your your listeners think that this is becoming a very theoretical book. It is not. Okay, it's the not. Dali legacy is a lot about the guy, the dude. You know how how weird he was, how funny he was, how amusing he was, and the ups and downs of his life. In fact, my Wait, wife, of which there we, were many. 
Yes. Uh, my wife, who is certainly uh, interested in art, but really, you know, sometimes struggles through uh, books uh, that we've written, says she loved the Dali legacy precisely because of the many biographical anecdotes and things that we throw in a mix. So it's a very easy to read book and, and a yes. fascinating book in many ways. I just wanted to add also kind of intertwined in all of that was also, you know, the Freudian, uh, you know, subliminal and, and absolutely the um, kind of also increased his craziness to some degrees, all the Freudian things. And he would always go back to how Freud had had prompted him in one way or another or how people like Einstein or even Picasso in his Cubism period have kind of pushed him in a way as well. You know, Dali didn't want to be put into one group. He didn't just didn't want to be the surrealist. Um, and he wasn't, although most people identify him as that, or they identify him with his handlebar mustache. Uh, and again, that's what makes him even today a uh, an icon. Uh, he, there's a new movie out on Netflix called The Money Heist, and they're all dressed up like Salvador Dali. <laughs> so, um, so again, I think Freud is, and, and several different things that were happening in science and with Einstein were, were just as important as you know, his relevance to the, the old masters or that 19th century uh, period. In the book, you do a very good job of bringing all of these different tangents together and an overall image of Dali that truly is fascinating. So in any conversation about Dali, we have to talk about his seminal work, The Persistence of Memory. So in the book, you talk about in the 20s and 30s, the new format that he experimented with was still life. And uh, the French term for it is nature mort, which means dead nature. And you say that Dali is preoccupied with the decay of living things. Later on in the book, you also go on to say that Dali becomes obsessed with the juxtaposition of hard and soft objects. And this seems to lead to the persistence of memory. Can you please share how Dali came to paint this important work? Well, I'll, I'll tell you the uh, the original story, and then I'll have Chris uh, interpret it. How's that? Um, the, the the interest in texture was very much an influence of the Spanish Baroque painters. The Spanish Baroque uh, painted in an era which we call the Counter Reformation, when the Catholic Church marshaled uh, its best artists in Italy and, and particularly in Spain to counter the spread of the Reformation, Protestantism, in an, in, an, in an effort to hold people into the Catholic Church. And they did that by an over-reliance on visual realism and visual material. Unlike uh, Calvinism, for example, which forbade any form of illustration or depiction uh, in its churches, uh, Catholicism went overboard in creating these amazing visions, for example, the Tronleu frescoes on the ceiling of, of churches where you look up and you see angels twirling on the ceiling. And, and these artists can, can, in a wonderful way, sort of blend and the, 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 the transition from real architecture to the painted suggestion of painted realism. And for simple people at the time, 
they really thought they were looking into heaven. And so Dali was fascinated by the technique of, of making that happen, of being able to almost feel like you could reach out and touch uh, a piece of bread, for example, which he painted early in his career. And that translated into his fascination with the contrast between hard and soft. Well, one day he was working on a painting and it didn't go very well. Uh, and uh, they had dinner, uh, Gayla, his wife, Gayla, and he. And um, Gayla said, you know, I'm going to watch a movie. You want to come? And he said, no, I'm, 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 I'm going to stay and try to f finish this, this painting. And he had they had very strong camembert at that dinner. And after Gayla left, he was sort of, you know, as we all do, looking at that camembert and pushing with his finger into that soft cheese. And that gave him an idea. And he ran to his studio and painted what would we now know as the persistence of memory. Originally, it wasn't called that. Originally, it was really called something else. But persistence of memory was the uh, name that uh, Gayla suggested. And, and it, you know, every, your listeners will know what we're talking about. It's that famous painting with the dripping clocks. And as a result, all sorts of theories have been offered to explain why these elements are clocks that are melting. Uh, Chris uh, has a few theories about that. Chris, tell us about uh, what you think the, the meaning is. Okay, so um, Leonardo da Vinci, his first painting that he ever painted was called The Baptism of Christ, and he was painting it for his teacher, Verrocchio. And most of the painting had been painted, and Verrocchio said to Leonardo, you paint this angel, Leonardo. And Leonardo said, well, we have this new thing called oil paints. Can I paint the angel in oil paints? And Verrocchio said, yes, go ahead and paint it, and however you want, but make the angel beautiful, please. So about a month later, Verrocchio comes back, and he sees this beautiful angel, and he goes, oh, my God, this is the most beautiful angel I have ever seen. And from now on, you will be the painter. Leonardo, and I'm going to go back to sculpture. So that's pretty much what happened happened with this painting. And in this painting, of course, of this angel looks so beautiful because oil paints really give you a depth and a 3D feeling and there's translucency with it. So the angel in this painting is is more beautiful than the rest of the painting. But I noticed in, in, in that painting that there are two angels and then there's Christ being baptized by John the Baptist. And if you lay it out on a grid, the persistence of memory looks exactly the same. There's two watches on the lower part. There's uh, a clock in a tree, like being crucified. And then there's a anthropomorphic form or like a head, a dead head, which could be John the Baptist head or could be, you know, interpreted as Dali in the future. Well, I then noticed on each of the clocks, they were different times. So the two clocks on the lower left that were the angels, they were two minutes until six. So they represented the past. And then their clock in the tree was at six. That represented the present. And again, that was being, Christ being crucified, which would he would always be in the present because his, um, his being crucified is for our salvation. So that would always be present for all of mankind. And then there was this, this head or dead form uh, with a clock on it. And that was two after six. So that represented the future. So you have not only using an old master's work, the baptism of Christ, but then you also introduced an element of time into it. And just the difference between the baptism and the crucifixion is the difference between the past and the present. And there were also two rocks in, in the painting, 
which also are relevant for time, which represent one, his dead brother, and then another one, Dali. And his dead brother was between the past and the present, and Dali's rock was between the present and the future. So to me, this was very indicative of of the secret influence that Dali said, hey, I'm going to rely on old masters. And then he put a twist of surrealism into it. And again, you know, between the camembert cheese and working on Da Vinci, probably, he came up with this idea and he painted it all on what had already, the whole landscaping had already been painted. He just added those three elements on and boom, he was done. As you discussed also the, the, with the decay of time, one of the watches has ants on it. And that is also a significant Dali symbolization of the decay of time in the past. And even when you go to the the, the the present and the future, and then you go, you have this anthropomorphic head that has a mustache like Dolly, and you can consider like John the Baptist's head being severed off in the future. It also has the decay of time associated with it as well. So that he was taking Einstein's theory of relativity and that time never really ends. It just keeps going and going and it could be circular and you could go, you know, you could go back into Dolly's mindset to even reinforce his ideas of reincarnation based on Einstein's theory of relativity. So from Einstein's theory of relativity, Dolly gave a lot of credence to current scientific breakthroughs. And um, after World War II, he spent eight years in exile in the U.S. After the war was over, he returned to Spain. And when he returned to Spain, he says, he declares his decision to recommit his art to spirituality and the reconciliation of science and mysticism. Can you address that, please? Yeah, I think um, that's a very interesting concept, of course, but we, we have to put that in, in the context of the time. Uh, what World War I did, and today, we, we many many of us have sort of forgotten about World War I. We, we think about World War II, but actually in Europe, World War I was a, a watershed moment because it, it eliminated all of the art movements that had preceded it. Uh, the Victorian age, the Edwardian age, saw itself at the very top of human achievement. And that's why many of the art forms of the 19th century tried to imitate uh, or continue uh, the trends begun by the Renaissance and the Baroque. And World War I destroyed all of those ideas. And so artists started with a new tabula rasa in many ways. And as a result, because many of the movements that we see emerging then, such as futurism, surrealism, constructivism, Dadaism, all of these movements were really just, uh, you know, fly-by-night elements, and they needed a foundation. And that's when, for the first time, you see the idea that when an artist produces a work, it needs to be buttressed by a theory. That's the first time when you see that. Until the 19th century, that was never the case. You know, Leonardo had lots of ideas, but he, he considered them techniques. You know, it was he, he didn't have a theory you know, of physics or anything like that. It's a unique element of the 20th century that all of a sudden an artist would produce something and then immediately rush out a manifesto that explained what the art was about. Hmm. Now, originally, of course, uh, and when he painted Persistence of Memory, uh, Dali was still very much in the surrealist camp. And, you know, André Breton, who was the one of the leading 
philosophers of the movement said that the reason what surrealism was about was that World War I had been caused by an over-reliance on rationalism. Uh, that's what he said. So the result, obviously, as a reaction, what artists should now do is not rely on their cognitive thinking, but on their intuitive thoughts, their intuitive dreams, their ideas, hallucinations even, uh, automatism, he calls it, uh, automatism, the, the spontaneous welling up of ideas in an artist's mind. You got to seize that. You got to paint that without necessarily trying to rationalize it. And, and you know, uh, Dali called it the paranoia critical process, which is actually a sort of a contradiction in terms, you know, because paranoia can be certainly a great stimulant of these ideas, these spontaneous visions. But then critical, of course, implies a rationalization. <laughs> so there was sort of a contradiction in terms there. So in, in the initial time, uh, period, you know, the pre-war period, the 1930s, 1931, when he painted for Sissons, he was very much still driven by that surrealist uh, idea of l'automatisme, the spontaneous vision. But after the war, after uh, the atomic explosion, of course, over Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which had a devastating impact, not just because of the destruction it wrought, but the idea that mankind now control the means for its own self-destruction, that made a great impact on them. And now you see that he sort of starts to immerse himself in things like uh, the atomic age, uh, nuclear physics, uh, quantum theory, and, and we can talk a little bit about it, but I want to make sure that Chris has a chance to say something about it too. And we, then, then we can explore those later scientific elements later. Go ahead, Chris. Well, the only thing I would add is, is, as an add-on is it also led into his religious or spiritual period and, and his meeting with the Pope in 1949. So he really intertwined this religious and nuclear mysticism period together because, because he realized that life was finite like his dead brother had been finite and but at the same point he also wanted to know more just like da vinci did about how mankind became a human being and and it's almost even before what crick and watson even talked about chromosomes dolly is painting chromosomes and it's, it was even before watson and crick even put anything out so he was he was very prolific in, in not only his painting during this period of time and the religious and nuclear type of, of thing and, and an extension of what Einstein had already discovered. But he he really, I think his best art was in this period between, you know, the late 40s and, and the early 70s. And, um, and probably his showmanship was a little bit less during that period of time, although he still was a showman. But he did beautiful portraits of people. He did beautiful paintings of the Last Supper and these beautiful religious paintings. And and for me, some of that period of time is my most favorite paintings of everything he did. And then, Chris, so how, and you say that, in your opinion, this was his best work. Why do you think it was his best work? And how was Dolly different than the other artists of the time? And then how did his spirituality and reverence for science and mysticism, how did that all culminate to make, in your opinion, his best work and differentiate him from other artists of the time? Well, probably one of the best things is there were the other artists that 
would copy him or would do things that would mock things that he did. So, so he, he was so much in favor in certain circles at that period of time that, that his even relationships with other artists were strengthened. I think before the, the, these early 1950s, he was kind of out on an Island by himself in between 1950s and 1970s. He started to get some respect by a number of artists and his work showed his confidence it, you know, his paintings were, were much more brilliant and full of color and, and, and very intelligent. I mean, his, his studies, you know, he could write a study and before you know it, he's painting the last supper and, and he really is taking his brilliance, you know, with 40 or 50 years of age behind him now, just like Da Vinci did and, and Da Vinci's best works were later in his life, just like Dali's. Um, and he really had one person behind him that, that pushed him towards classical art, but also helped him with finances and everything. And that was his muse or his wife, uh, Gala. And I, I really think all these things coming together with, you know, his reading and science and, 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 and the, the progress in, in, in science during this period of time really served him as, as a real good stimulus for him to involve that into his art and to suck the community in a little bit to say, Hey, I really enjoy this much more than so-called surrealism. It's, it's really impressive. And to me, that's the way I feel at that period of time, you know, my most favorite pieces that I own are my religious paintings and the religious uh, things of Dolly. And I really think he captures the moment and the emotion uh, and the pain in a way that other artists didn't. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think Jean-Pierre is the last question. Um, our time is up and I, for you having the last word, um, what is the secret of Dolly's success and what do you want people to know about him? Well, I think, uh, you know, as we, in, in, in the closing chapter, we, 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 uh, we believe that Dali saw himself as a messianic figure. Uh, don't forget that the realism that was still fairly tolerated in the interwar period was completely abrogated by artists after World War II because the totalitarian regimes of Mussolini and Hitler imposed realism on their artists. A social re realism. Um, I'm sorry, not Mussolini, but Stalin and Soviet Russia. In Soviet Russia and in Nazi Germany, social realism was the only form that was tolerated. So you come out of World War II, and any artist who in the West who still clings to realism is inherently suspect. And so Dali felt he needed legitimacy for this very painstaking photographic realism, which becomes even stronger, as Chris said, in the 50s and the 60s. And he saw that in, through the link with science. He believed he was called upon to bridge the tensions between science and art, between modernism and beauty, between reason and faith. He, he thought he was called upon to do that. And that's the bridge he tried to create. And I think that's why he's so, so popular today, because even to this day, we can see what he was after. We can see beautiful paintings that have religious themes as well as erotic themes. You would kind of think that's kind of bizarre. But for him, it all comes to energy. You know, he considered eroticism the key energy source that, that propelled humankind in the same way that energy 
is the guiding force of the universe in quantum physics. So that's where he tried to, to bridge these worlds together. And I think that's why he's truly, even in the 21st century, a very relevant artist. I am so sorry that we are out of time, but I'm so happy that you two were available to spend these 30 minutes with us. And we're at the intersection of energy and art. So you picked the perfect ending note and talking about how Dali, and I don't believe any other artist of the time, was considering quantum physics and the energy of the universe as the guiding force in his work. Before we leave, please share with our listeners one more time where they can find out information about the Dali legacy. Sure. So as Chris mentioned, uh, Leonardo Books, plural.com, leonardobooks.com is the website where we list all of our books. Uh, the Dali Legacy. Uh, you can simply enter that into your Amazon search window. Uh, you can even add uh, either Chris Brown or my name, Jean-Pierre Isbats, to it, and it will appear the Dali Legacy, which is available now from Apollo Publishers. Uh, and go to your local bookstore uh, or local library. I'm sure they have it as well. Thank you both for being with us today. And it was a very enlightening talk. And um, I highly recommend the book. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today on the Frequency of Creativity, where we are at the intersection of energy and art. To see how I translate energy and light into art, sign up for my newsletter at melindaharcurly.com. Now, like Dali, be your own inspired self in the world. Thank you for listening to the Superpower Network. Go now to superpowerexperts.com to unlock your superpowers and change your life today.